iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I think a real inflection point may happen, though, when the safety and effectiveness of editing becomes so strong that billionaires really can produce super children. And once word of that gets out, people are going to really pause and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like Donald Trump's kid is, you know, six foot four and has an IQ of 200 and uh, seems like he's going to live to be 200 years old. How come he gets to do that and we don't get to do that? Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, coming to you from London. I am in the big smoke this week, running around to from meeting to meeting, um, kind of with my hair on fire. It's very weird to be in a big city with lots of people running around. It's kind of like a shock to the system after two years of lockdown and kind of relatively sleepy Silicon Valley, just in terms of the sheer numbers of people and energy uh, relative to like being on the train at rush hour in London. Yowza, different world, but it's also kind of great. But anyhow, this week's episode, man, we have a mind bender for you. So this is an interview I did last week right before I left, and um, it's about genomics and how we are entering this entirely new era of, if not designer babies, Certainly being able to choose children on a whole array of characteristics. We're starting with things like their proclivities for a number of diseases like cancer or schizophrenia, but it's also possible today to choose embryos that are based on potential IQ, skin tone, eye color. You can see where this is going. Those services, you know, the kind of intellectual and cosmetic details, those aren't offered today, but it feels like a matter of time. So to talk about all of this, it's a you know very big, hairy, interesting discussion. We've brought on Stephen Shu. He is the co-founder of Genomic Prediction. Now you may recall late last year we had someone else on from this company, Elizabeth Carr, and Elizabeth was very famously America's first test tube baby, and she was doing a lot of work around kind of educating people about genomic prediction, what they're doing, and the technology they're using, which is called polygenic testing embryos. But a few weeks back, one of their co-founders of the company reached out and put me in touch with Stephen Shu, uh, who helped co-found the company. And he is a controversial character. So there was a movement to remove him from his post, where he was vice president of research at Michigan State University. Uh, that movement was successful. He did resign. He remains at the university. And the calls were based on some of his blog posts around this technology 
uh, some of his interviews and really pointing out um, that there, there are potential differences you can see, can find between ethnicities, races, individuals on a whole number of these differences. And he was called uh, a racist, a eugenicist, um, and he was forced to resign. Now, we do address this in the conversation, and you can read up more on the controversy if you just do a simple Google search. But I do agree with Shu and a lot of other academics in this space that there is a real need to start talking about this technology because it is here, it is getting more prevalent, and we have to kind of figure out what we want to allow and disallow. You know, what are the red lines we are willing to cross or not um, when you're talking about choosing embryos based on kind of not quite everything, but a whole lot of pretty big characteristics, details. It's a big deal. So that's why even though we had Elizabeth on a few months ago, I thought it was worth having on Stephen to talk about this stuff because it's a very big deal and it has huge implications for society, especially when you step back and you think about, well, how is China going to approach this technology in a different way, presumably, than, than we do? Or in Europe, UK, America, everybody's going to have a little bit of a different take, but it has potentially really dramatic implications for kind of what society looks like. So that is what we talk about. I think you guys are going to find this really interesting. So without further ado, I'll now hand you over to my discussion with Stephen Shu, the co-founder of Genomic Prediction. Enjoy. So you may have seen, I spoke with Elizabeth Carr some months back about genomic prediction. And then Laurent, I think, um, reached out to me a few weeks ago and said, oh, you, you guys should talk. And I was like, oh, this is great. Because I just find the whole field, the whole science, fascinating. So why don't we start at the beginning? Sure. Well, first of all, if you could just say, you know, your title, what you are doing, um, company, etc. And then we can kind of go backwards. Okay. I am a professor of theoretical physics. And uh, I also do things in AI and machine learning. For about a little over 10 years now, I've been doing research in AI, ML, applied to genomics. And I am a co-founder of the company Genomic Prediction and also of another company called Othram, which does forensic DNA. It solves cold cases and crimes using DNA. Oh. The common theme here is really just the use of math algorithms applied to genomic data, big, big genomic data sets. And I've known Laurent for many years. We worked on a project together with a big genotyping, a big genomics company in China called BGI. That's how we first met. And what does BGI do? Well, BGI, it's no longer an acronym, but it once stood for Beijing Genomics Institute. And it's a large genomics company in China its claim to fame when Laurent worked there and when I first met him was that they had the most sequencing power of any entity in the world. They had something like a hunt, over 100 Illumina high seeks. So they were interested in doing all kinds of cutting edge science with genomic sequencing. When was that? That was around 2010. 2010. Because I think that's part of, obviously part of the, the whole story with genomics is just how dramatically 
prices have come down, computing power has gone up, and the kind of the consumerization of a lot of this is, you know, the way that most people will interact with this, if at all. But I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think that's obviously a huge part of kind of what is happening now. Yeah. And that was exactly my motivation for getting involved. So you know, I said at the beginning, my main area of work is theoretical physics, you know, and quantum field theory and black holes and quantum gravity have very little to do with human genomes. So you might ask, what, what the hell are you doing with human genomes? Yes. And the main thing is that back around 2010, I realized that if we were to follow the cost curves that were projected for genomic sequencing, that there would just be a, a huge amount of data around to be analyzed in the future. And that's turned out to be true. And having a mathematical background, I was able to actually make accurate predictions for what exactly would be possible with given amounts of data. So what could you do if you had 100,000 people and they were well phenotyped, like you, you knew all their, you knew their whole disease history, you knew how tall they were, you knew their IQ score. So in early papers that I wrote 10 years ago, actually, I predicted what would happen you know, mathematically predicted, you know, for example, the level of accuracy we would have in predicting human height if we had a few hundred thousand individuals analyze, to analyze. And the data to do that came available in 2017 and fall of 2017, I think it was fall of 2017, we published a paper where we built a purely DNA-based, purely genomic predictor of height, of adult height. The accuracy is about three centimeters, plus or minus three centimeters, and it uses about 20,000 of order 10,000 different locations in your genome. So we need to know the state of about 10,000 different genetic variants in your genome. And from those roughly 10,000, we can predict your height. Right. So just so I understand, so if you have my genome without, you know, if I'm just like, you know, an a name on a page. Or I got it at a crime scene. <laughs> or you got it at a crime scene, exactly. Yep. You could say, Danny Fortson is, I'm 6'4". He's probably going to be around 6'3", or something. Yeah, we, like would, that. we would get a prediction of something like 6'3", plus or minus an inch, that kind of accuracy. So that shocked people. I mean, now it's, it's funny how people's memories and psychologies adapt. But in 2016, when I went around, or 2012, when we first wrote the paper, when I ran around telling people, yeah, as soon as we get to this threshold of data, we'll be able to, quote, solve height. Mm. And once we get to this threshold of data, we'll be able to, quote, solve cognitive ability. They just looked at me like I was crazy. And, you know, a few of them who could understand math, I would say, okay, this is how you prove that what I say is true. But what really sealed it is when we published that paper in 2017, it was a featured article in Genetics, which is the leading U.S. journal in genet human genetics. Yeah, then they had to you know, pay attention. Right. And simultaneously, there were a few other groups in the world that were really at the bleeding edge trying to do really high, you know, accurate prediction using extremely large data sets. And so right around that time, 2017, 2018... There were key papers published for almost all human, you know, the most impactful human disease conditions, height, cognitive ability, all kinds of predictors were published just starting around 2017, 2018, 2019. And so now a few years later, we have very good validated predictors for many different, the technical term is phenotypes, but that just means sort of measurable 
characteristics of an organism. And they're partially determined by DNA, but not entirely determined. But the part that is determined by DNA is well predictable. And so that is height of obviously cognitive ability, which we'll, which we'll get to. Obviously, that's a very touchy area. What else are we talking about? Yeah. So the, let me give you the best example, mm. which gets into it a little bit. But okay. Are you familiar with the – there's a genetic variant called BRCA? The breast cancer gene. Correct. So – It's been known for a long time that if you have a certain mutation, certain type of mutation in a certain region of your genome, and you're a woman, you will have an unusually high risk of breast cancer. And that's been known for a long time. It was discovered through family trees, genealogies. So you might have a whole family that anomalously, you know, many of the women in that family have had breast cancer, and maybe they had it early in life. And so then the geneticists went and tried to see if there was something unusual about their genomes and they could narrow it down to single mutations. So that's very well-established science. And it's even like the way that the medical system deals with people who carry BRCA mutations is well-established. You give them early screening, early mammograms, you you keep an eye on them starting like when they're in their thirties. Right. Ordinary women, you don't necessarily have to be that worried about breast cancer until they're in their forties or fifties. Yeah. So there's a standard of care for that kind of person. But that kind of person with that mutation is very rare. It's typically one in a thousand women, or at most a few per thousand, depending on what ancestry group you come from. But with the modern techniques, so with the modern techniques that groups like mine developed, and this, this capability is only a few years old, we can identify 10 times as many women in the population who do not have the BRCA variant, but have equivalent risk. And that risk is not originating from a single mutation. It's originating from the aggregate effect of thousands of mutations. But we know where they are and the computer can add them up. No human brain can track all this stuff, but the computer can do it. Mm. So these algorithms now allow us to extend the same kind of treatment that we we have in the past given to BRCA carriers can be given to women who are at high polygenic risk for breast cancer. And furthermore, most families that have a history of breast cancer are not BRCA carriers. They're overwhelmingly likely to be at high polygenic risk, which they still can pass on to their children, but they're not carriers of any one single special mutation. That's the kind of world we live in now where heart disease, breast cancer, prostate cancer, type 1, type 2 diabetes. For all of these conditions, we can identify individuals who are risk outliers because of the state of, you know, typically thousands of different locations in their genome. They are either at, for example, unusually high risk or sometimes unusually low risk for these conditions. And so it's it's a totally different world now. And how do you build those models? In other words, where are you drawing your data from? Is it basically from 23andMe and some of these big consumer companies where people just say, as part of like, I'm spending 300 bucks to get my genome sequenced. Also, this can be used for research. Is that where this, where these kind of this data, the raw data is coming from? So I would say a relatively small fraction of the scientific papers published in this area use commercial data from say 23andMe almost all of the data that's used in the scientific publications comes from government-funded 
biobanks. So UK Biobank, the NIH maintains several biobanks. There's a Taiwan biobank, a Japan biobank. So it just turns out that because they were that data was collected specifically for science, it's a bit cleaner. It's usually derived from real medical records of the individual. There are just a number of reasons why that data has been more impactful than the consumer data. But I am a big advocate for, you know, I do think that between Ancestry and 23andMe and some of the other commercial firms, they could drive the research forward much faster if they were really focused on it, but but they're more focused on their consumer business. Right, right. So that, that in the breast cancer example, how does that manifest itself in terms of like the real world, how that would be rolled out? Because obviously, you know, the, the I think the, the famous cases of Angelina Jolie, she finds out she has a BRCA gene and she obviously takes a very extreme step of having a kind of a prophylactic double mastectomy. But in terms of like these polygenic scores, your company genomic prediction is about kind of scoring embryos, obviously, but are you also rolling this out for just kind of, you know, people out walking around the street, just trying to figure out what, what they might be more prone to? Yes. So if I were to project into the future, say 10 years into the future, I think that when you go to see your doctor, the tests that your doctor does on you, the advice your doctor gives you will be conditioned on information that's coming from your genome using these predictors that I just described. Now, there's a very pessimistic, cynical remark that's often made in medical research, which is that even after the breakthrough is made in the laboratory, it's easily a decade before it makes it into your GP's office. Yeah. So we're in that decade right now for, you know, diabetes risk, heart disease risk, uh, you know, you name it. There are a few exceptions. So I mentioned the case of breast cancer for a reason. So that's a case where the genetic link has long been known. Yeah. And the company that actually discovered the, you know, the BRC, that owns the BRCA patent called Myriad. Myriad is already using some polygenic risk scoring in its breast cancer screening. So it is actually being used, you know, widely. However, it's not as widely used as it could be. So I think eventually every health system will be doing aggressive screening based on DNA. And we could even talk about how it's going to affect health insurance because health insurers can't afford to be in an asymmetric information situation where the person taking out the policy knows more about their genome and their risks than the policy writer. Because uh, obviously, if I know, I, if I'm pretty sure I'm going to have Alzheimer's, and I want a long-term care policy, that one contract that the company does with me might cost them a million dollars because they're not pricing it right because I'm pretty sure I'm going to need it, the full-blown package. And they don't know whether, you know, they think only 10% of people who sign up for this are going to need it. So it's going to change the way health insurance is done for sure. Right, right, right. So as you, as you say, we're in this kind of period where we're kind of starting to be able to predict some of these things. And obviously, it's not an exact science. You can't say for certain whether, you know, even if you have the BRCA gene that you're actually going to get cancer or that if you're prone to Alzheimer's, you will get Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's definitely statistical prediction or probabilistic prediction. There are people that are far enough out on the outlier tail that I can say like, yeah, this person's going to have diabetes when they get older, unless they take extreme precautions. Right. And this person is never going to get diabetes, even if they eat ice cream cones uh, at every meal. Right. So, but that, that's not true for the bulk of the population. 
So how does genomic prediction work today, the company? What, it, what is it offering? What is it doing? Because my understanding is that it's basically, it's, it's for people using IVF. So you have, you know, I don't know, half a dozen embryos and that you can basically test them using genomic predictions technology and basically assign them each a score. Is that more or less right? Yeah. It, just for clarity, maybe for your listeners, I, I can walk you through because not, not everybody is that familiar with IVF. Mm. So in some countries like Denmark, 10% of all babies now are born through IVF. 10% in Denmark. Wow. Yeah. Because it's covered by their healthcare system. Right. There's a lot of gender equality. So women pursue their careers, tend to get married later. So it's 10% there. In most developed countries, it's something like 3 to 5%. Yep. So, so it's a significant fraction of births. Mill millions like to, of people. Yeah. The way I like to say it is if you go to the kindergarten down the street uh, and you look at the class, there are a few IVF kids there. Yeah. But not everybody's familiar with it. So when you go through IVF, the, the mother-to-be uh, gets some hormone shots that cause her to overproduce eggs in her cycle. And if she's a younger woman, she can produce... I've seen cases of 10 to 20 eggs wow. in a cycle. Typically, the people going through IVF are older and have maybe diminished ovarian reserve. And so typic a more typical number would be three to five. Yeah. Okay, something like that. So they end up with some number, just, just to be definite throughout our conversation, we could say, oh, it's five embryos or something, yep. right? And these are fertilized and they're allowed to grow to about 100 cells. So it looks like a little soccer ball. Yep. And attached to the part of, say, the top of the soccer ball is this area called the trophectoderm, which is going to turn into the placenta. Okay. See, so it doesn't become your kid, but it has the same DNA as your kid. Gotcha. Okay? So it is now standard at most good IVF clinics to take a little biopsy, a few cells off the trophectoderm. The rest of the embryo is frozen in liquid nitrogen. And generally a month or more later, the actual transfer occurs into the mother's womb. And it's found that that time gives the mother's body some time to recover from the hormone treatment. Got you. Okay. So the pipeline we've built allows us to take that standard biopsy. It's a standard biopsy. It's, it's, it's pretty much taken always by the good clinics. And in the past, what has been done with that biopsy is some very basic genetic screening. So they might just check to see that there isn't some problem with the chromosome structure mm -hmm. or say an additional copy of chromosome 21, which might lead to Down syndrome. Right. Okay. So that's already done in the majority of IVF cycles in the United States. And, and indeed in, in normal births, right? I mean, when we had our kids, we also had the Down screening and a couple other screenings at various times during the pregnancy. Yes. So this is obviously before the pregnancy, yeah. but, but yes, so that kind of information is standard now in IVF. And so millions of embryos a year are screened, biopsied, and then screened. So what we built is a pipeline which does a full amplification of the DNA that's in those few cells. And it allows us to do a whole genome genotype of each embryo. And then from that whole genome raw data, we can compute all of these predictors that you and I have been discussing. So you get a report, you get a health report on each of the, say, five embryos that you're looking at. And the thing I want to stress is that everybody is making an embryo selection. 
unless you're a very unfortunate couple going through IVF and you just have one embryo that's viable, everybody else who goes through IVF is going to make an embryo selection. And how does that happen today? Yeah. So the least common situation in the US is the only information they have is the so-called morphology or shape appearance of the embryo. So you can look at them under a microscope and the embryologist in his infinite wisdom can tell you, oh, I think number three is going to be a baseball player. Or uh, I think number two looks really good. You should implant number two. Okay. So that, that's not uncommon if, if you're not at a clinic that does screening. If you're at a clinic that does routine screening, you at least know about the chromosome structure of each of the embryos. By the way, I want to come back to this later, but it, it turns out that because we built such a sophisticated pipeline for genotyping, our ability to detect problems with the chromosomes is much, much stronger than the pre-existing technology. And it turns out that's the single most impactful thing that GP does right now. So I could come back to that later. But if you're working with GP, you then get an additional layer of information. You get a very fulsome report on each of the embryos, which has, for example, their uh, diabetes risk or you know, breast cancer risk if it's female, and an overall score which is a little bit like a life expectancy score or an overall health score. So our perspective on this is the family was already going to make an embryo selection. We would rather them do the selection with more information rather than less information. Right. And so what could be wrong with that? So that, that's the current situation. Um, just coming back for a second to that chromosome structure issue. It turns out that when the IVF clinic sends the biopsy to the clinic for the genetic screening. If they send it to a lab that's using the old technology for chromosome structure, they get a much less accurate result. And it turns out that the success rate, the probability per transfer of having a successful pregnancy goes up from something like, I think it's like a order 50% to over 70%. If you actually use our, you know, because we're getting the whole genome data, we can make a much better, much more accurate characterization of the chromosome structure. So it turns out that if you use our uh, screen, just at this level, at this basic level, generally the pregnancy success rate per IVF cycle goes way up. Got you. And, and that, it turns out that's the single most impactful thing that we've done as a company. In the long run, obviously this ability to do very you know sophisticated embryo screening based on health risks and other things, that may turn out to be even more impactful. But uh, as of right now, that it's the chromosome stuff that's, um, that's already having an impact. Right. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And um, I just want to cover a little bit more on the company and kind of how it works and then get into a lot of the issues around this that obviously are already starting to bubble up and will bubble up as this becomes more widespread. But in terms of genomic prediction, the company... What is the cost? I think from memory, it's like a thousand bucks or fifteen hundred bucks or something like this. And also, the like, what is the state of the company? Are you all over the U.S.? Are you international? Like, have you raised venture capital money? Kind of, where is the company itself? Yeah. So, in terms of the cost to the consumer, there's not one number I can give you because the costs vary from clinic to clinic. But I will say it this way: it's a small fraction of the cost of the IVF cycle. Right. IVF is like 20, 30 grand or something, isn't it? Yeah, maybe 10, 20 grand. You know, really depends on where you're doing it. But the cost uh, for the even the most sophisticated screening of the embryos is typically in the few thousand dollar range. So it's it's quite a bit less. It's a small perturbation to the overall cost of doing IVF. And, you know, you can argue all kinds of things like if you, oh, just by lowering the risk of some super impactful disease by a few percent, the expected gain for the family is, you know, is much, much larger than the amount they're spending for the screening. Right. I think that's, it's pretty easy to justify that. As a company, so we're venture backed. We've had several rounds of venture funding. I don't know the exact number, but we work with well over 200. I mean, the number as of six months ago, I think was already over 200 IVF clinics worldwide. I believe the single largest, the, 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 the largest subset of those few hundred clinics is in the U.S., but they're all over the world. They're on six, I guess the CEO tells me we're on six continents. Right. So it's pretty far along. I mean, you know, in terms of funding, if, if, if there are any venture investors out there who want to talk to us, we have pretty well-known investors. I'm not going to discuss who they are with you, but we have pretty well-known investors. And we're at a point now where we're probably leaving behind venture and probably doing either, either private equity or maybe an IPO at some point. Well, it's interesting that the investors appear to want to kind of keep quiet on this one. <laughs> and like, typically, like, you know, I'm out here covering startups uh, week in, week out. Everybody's screaming from the mountaintops the latest company that they've backed. Why do you think they're not doing that in this case? Well, it turns out that there are some people who are extremely excitable <laughs> when it comes to anything to do with genetic screening. Hmm. And, you know, I mean... You read the papers. Yep. Um, I write so, the papers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so you know, these people are very excitable. And one of the things that happened early on was that, you know, we said it's possible to do cognitive ability. Yeah. So cognitive ability would be a quantitative prediction, like you're going to be 6'3", or you're going to have an IQ of 145 plus or minus 20 points or, so, you know, something like this. We said society's not ready for that. It's too controversial. And so did you guys start offering that and then stop? Or were you just, did you say, hey, we can do this, but we're not going to? Or did you start and people kind of freaked out and then you stopped? Or how did, how did that kind of transpire? Yeah, let me, give you, let me give you the whole history. Yeah, yeah. So in initial discussions with reporters and with journalists, we pointed out, we wanted to point it out because I think society needs to have 
a discussion where people can learn what the technology is capable of and then make ethical judgments about what should be allowed and what should not be allowed. And this doesn't just apply to intelligence, although intelligence is the thing people are most excitable about, but it, any cosmetic trait like height, eye color, we can tell you which kid is light-skinned and dark-skinned. Mm. So we don't do any of that because we just don't feel society is ready. So we only do very impactful medical conditions. But the technology can do that. It can. C-A-N. Can. Right. Yeah. So you might have red hair. It, it can definitely tell who's a ginger. Right. But we don't release any of that information. But we wanted to start a conversation because, you know, it's not good for just scientists to know X is possible. The society has to know X is possible and then make have a conversation about it. So, so you know, being a propeller beanie academic, when I would speak to journalists early on, I would try to explain to them, this is coming, this is coming, people have to, we have to have a public civil discourse about this and decide what's feasible. Now, the only thing we ever said about it is that we said, society's not ready for this, we're not going to offer rank ordering of the embryos based on height or intelligence. Hmm. But there is an issue that if you detect a negative outlier among the embryos, so say you, for some reason, embryo number four looks like it's going to be really, really below average in intelligence. It's going to have, and there's a medical condition, right? It's uh, intellectual disability, hmm. right? So the question is, do we have a moral obligation to tell the family that embryo four is not, not giving them any point estimates yeah. or telling them that number two is better than number three, but do we have a moral obligation if number four is really, there's something really funny about the distribution of genes affecting cognibility for embryo four, do we have a moral duty to uh, inform the family? Inform the, we actually, it, our stuff doesn't go to the family, it goes to the physician, the physician and the genetic counselor talk to the family. But do we have an obligation to point that out? So it kind of got mushed all together because I hate to say this, but journalists are not always accurate. So they kind of got the story all mushed together. We though have never given out a report with even that kind of warning. We've neither warned people about negative outliers, nor do we offer any rank ordering or point estimate. So you decided to basically be like, we're just not going to touch it at all. Yeah, we're not touching it at all. Right. We don't touch any cosmetic traits or any cognitive traits. Right. The reason our internal discussion on this was there's so much value, positive utility for society from the health benefits that we don't want to jeopardize that through an unnecessary controversy in order to, you know, one in a hundred or one in a thousand embryos, we deliver this warning where it's necessary. But I do want people to know that, you know, there is a family out there that could have benefited from this who didn't because journalists got so excitable about it. Is that the reason though? Because it does feel like, I mean, I think it was in last summer, I think there was a bunch of researchers and doctors, they wrote, they penned this um, kind of joint letter to the New England Journal of Medicine saying, you know, we need an urgent I think they called an urgent society-wide conversation about this technology because you can do these things that in a way, you know, could exacerbate, you know, some of the ills of society. If people can have some resources that others don't, they can be like, well, I'm going to choose the smartest, best looking, tallest of these embryos and everybody, you know, you can kind of start to, you can get really dark, right? You can really go down the Gattaca route where you're just like, we are breeding a super race of people that are just on a different plane than everybody else, for example. Yes. And I'll say, we can come back to this in a minute, but all of what you said is scientifically possible. 
Mm. Okay, it is possible to do those things, but we can come back to that. But I completely agree with that sentence that, I, I mean, I know the authors of that New England Journal of Medicine paper. We don't disagree on any scientific issues with them. And uh, we also agree there should be an urgent societal discussion about these technologies. And that's why pretty much every journalist that wants to talk to me, I will talk to, even though some of them I'm pretty sure are going to make it into clickbait and just focus on the cognitive ability stuff. But I just feel like society does need to discuss this because uh, other societies are probably not going to come down in the same place as, say, the United States or the UK on what's allowable and what's not allowable. And so we need to have this discussion. Well, the, to that very point, I've actually had on this pod an uh, entrepreneur. He works at Founders Fund. He has a space company, Delian Esparov. I think he's one of your clients, Genomic Predictions clients. But he was basically saying, we need to beat China. The way we're going to do that, we need to make better humans. He, his wife and I are basically saying, he's saying, like, we're scoring our embryos and choosing the best one to make the best human possible. And kind of like saying, this is what we need to do because China is this big force and, you know, that has different approaches to lots of things in life. And maybe they won't have the kind of issues that we have here of being like, well, should we actually even be doing this? Yeah. So I think it is true. And I guess I'm well placed to know this. If you talk to the modal Asian couple, and I don't just mean Chinese, it could be East, any East Asians, uh, Japanese, Koreans, or South Asians from India or Pakistan. If they're in an IVF clinic and you go up to them and you say, hey, did you know this new technology exists to do X, Y, and Z, where X, Y, and Z are what we've been talking about, they are much, much less likely to have a negative reaction to it than random couple in the United States or in the UK. And I'll tell you why. It's because and this may come as a shock to you as a, no offense, but white Westerner, mm -hmm. not everybody thinks in Eurocentric terms. So mm -hmm. when you mention like, oh, you, you could get a better baby, you could, where better means, you know, healthier, stronger, smarter, whatever. Their first cultural reference is not Adolf Hitler and the National Socialist Party in the 1940s. It's to them, that's somebody else's history. That's something that happened in Europe. There were some crazy people in Europe. They killed each other. That's not the history of China. It's not the history of India. It's not the history of Malaysia. And their view, they can come at this with open eyes and say, oh, this is new technology. I would like my child to be healthy. I would like my child to have every benefit that I can give that child. In fact, I'll pay for cram school you know, mm. when the child is in junior high. I'll pay for soccer lessons. Yeah. And, I, and I'll pay for the best embryo screening I can get my hands on. So there's just a completely different cultural context to it. And- I think that if I were to make a prediction, I think different cultures and societies are going to come down differently in terms of what's allowable in their societies when it comes to reproductive technology. And not to leap even further ahead, but we're not very far from being able to do safe and effective gene editing. So instead of selecting best out of 10 or best out of 20 embryos, you may just go in and make the changes you want in 10 or 20 years. I would be surprised if we can't. So this is a very urgent discussion and the very diversity of cultures on the planet means that each culture has got to like understand it and make their own choice for what they want to allow or not allow.
So what is your perspective? Because before we got on, I was reading, um, I think it was two years ago, there was a call for you basically to get canned at Michigan State or to get kind of thrown out because of some of some of the discussions that you've had on this issue in the past. Um, and it was interpreted in a way that was seen as racist or eugenicist. And there was a whole hullabaloo and kind of, I don't know if you can talk about kind of what happened there and, you know, just stepping back in terms of like, again, when you're talking about the milieu in the United States and some of these really urgent issues and urgent discussion that frankly is, is still not happening right now. Yeah. Well, it is true that, you know, there are far left, super woke parts of society that just to be totally frank, they're against the very discussion of these scientific and technological issues. So if you say, I think it's okay to screen embryos, or people in Japan have every right to screen embryos for intelligence if that society decides it's what they want to do. Right. There are people on university campuses today or on Twitter <laughs> who will just call you a racist or a eugenicist for, for agreeing with those statements. Now, the funny, tragic part of this is that Actually, the very first big discomfort that arose in these woke circles from genomics came because, and now we're going back 15 years or more, when we first started analyzing even small numbers of genomes, like 100 genomes or 1,000 genomes, we found we could cluster people by ancestry mm -hmm. so that in gene space, all the Swedes would cluster together and all the Koreans would cluster together. And these leftists had spent 20 years telling everybody in the academy and on campus that race was a social construct. And so the very idea that I could figure out who the Greek guy is amongst a thousand, a hundred genomes of Germans mm. freaked these people out. And if you look at the Twitter mob that attacked me when I was vice president for research at MSU, this was two years ago, a lot of the blog posts that they pointed to calling me a racist were blog posts I had written in 2007 just explaining how clustering algorithms work mm. with human genomes. So just to show you how far apart woke leftism is from basic scientific technology when it impinges on genetics, they were literally calling me a racist for explaining the technology that Ancestry.com and 23andMe use to tell you you have 47% French heritage, okay? That's how stupid things are today, okay? So, so we're not in a position where we can really openly discuss with clear minds and you know, with rational, cool logic, analyze what we should do with all these technologies because even some of the basic aspects of this technology are deeply, deeply you know, disturbing to a section of our uh, polity. Right, but that's not true in East and South Asia. There is nobody in East or South Asia. It's only a few billion people. I know it's they don't have white skin, but it's only a few billion people. But those people don't have these hangups. They can talk about genetic clustering, they can talk about polygenic risk. They don't get excited in seminar rooms or on campuses over these scientific realities. So, you know, forgive me if I think it's crazy for, you know, Europeans to, you know, who are still obsessed with Nazi Germany to be lecturing people from Asia 
about how they should handle reproductive technology. Well, I think it's totally fair and right to be obsessed with Nazi Germany, given <laughs> given what happened there. It's okay for you, but yeah. t tell that to tell that to a guy in Malaysia. Tell tell him right. why he should be obsessed. Yeah, tell him. Right. And I the, the other thing I'm just I just want to understand is when we talk about cognitive differences between Swedes or Greeks or no no we're not when, no one's talking about cognitive differences between groups we're talking mm -hmm. about between individuals so between individuals yeah one of the reasons why people get so heated about this is yeah they, they conflate several things okay mm. I can look at a genome and say this genome is from somebody with most of their ancestry from Africa yeah and this is a genome most of the ancestry comes from North Asia mm-hmm. That's different from saying, oh, because this person is from North Africa or from Africa, they're smarter than the person. Right. Nobody's making those claims. It's just that these woke people are so afraid of going anywhere near those claims that they, they, they want to chop, they want to stop you short, very short from before you, you know, nobody is making any claims about relationships between your ancestry group and your cognitive ability. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you have... 10 potential kids and among your 10 kids, maybe, you know, the mom is uh, Chinese and the father is German or something, you know, among your 10 kids, can we make any prediction about which of those kids is going to be above or below average for height or IQ or uh, disease risk? That certainly is a reality. And it's been tested on quite large amounts of data. And there's no scientific, there's literally no scientific disagreement about that. Nobody's making claims about, oh, because of differences in genes between two different ancestry groups, one group is on average smarter than the other. Nobody's making any claims like that. Yeah. And it's, it, well, it's really interesting. So I'm just, so here we are, we're in 2022. You guys have been working on this for years now. And as you say, we're kind of in this fallow period between what this science can do. And I want to just ask about that specifically, and then we can move on to the next question around kind of how it is then going to be rolled out into the doctor's office, society more broadly, what that all means. But the other thing that in kind of talking to folks in and around this field is, you know, there is some question around how predictive this stuff is, like how useful this data is. Like, are these actually like, you know, are we over egging the pudding when we can say, when we say, you know, this of the 10, this one is going to be 6'3 and, you know, have a 140 IQ or has the best chance to. Yeah. So you're, I mean, you're talking about if we were trying to do that kind of thing, how well could we do it? Yeah. So that, that's been simulated quite a bit by, and tested empirically quite a bit. And so, you know, there are papers, many papers now published, which estimate the risk reduction mm. that you would get from, you know, you have five embryos, you choose the one with the lowest schizophrenia risk. How much did you reduce your schizophrenia risk? And there's, Basically, as far as I know, no scientific disagreement about the size of the gains. Typically, the families that would benefit most from that kind of selection, risk reduction, are ones with a family history. So schizophrenia, which is a devastating disease, it's relatively rare. It's, it's affecting like 1% of the population. But if you have a first-degree relative that had schizophrenia, if it's in your family, then you have something like a 10% chance. And so the ability to reduce that by half or more is really significant. Yeah. Um, an economist would put a very big dollar value on that. So there's no doubt about that. Now, if you get into Gattaca-like stuff and you say, we're going to 
have scenarios where the family has 30 fertilized embryos and they're able to genotype all of them and they choose the one that would be the smartest or the tallest. Yeah, there are pretty significant gains that can come from that. And, um, you know, it'll change dramatically when you can just go in and make the edits that you want. And I think we're at most 20 years, probably 10 years Mm. from that. Right. So that's when I say there's some urgency to discuss it, it's not so much just because of embryo selection. It's because the same scientific knowledge coupled with safe and effective editing, which CRISPR is improving, you know, every day will cause a a real discontinuity. And, and if society is not ready for that, that will be a real shock. So throwing forward to, say, 2032, 10 years from now, how do you see this playing out? When not, And I'm not even talking about the genetic engineering. I'm talking about the ability to choose kind of the embryo with the highest score. And I ask because, you know, there's a world in which, and I don't know if this is realistic because IVF is is not an easy process or some something that most people would do if they had a choice. They kind of do it as a last resort. But is there a world where you, it becomes where people are like, you know what, I'll have sex for fun, but when I want to make a kid, I'm going to do IVF because this kind of ensures that I have the best shot of having a good, smart, able child. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the funny tagline is... Uh... Sex is for recreation, science is for procreation. Right. The, the question you're asking is when does the scale tip for the kind of super high investment parent who gets violin lessons for their kid when they're in kindergarten and gets them a private soccer coach and stuff like that, i.e. all the people living around you in San Francisco? Yeah. Um, at what point does the scale tip where they say, we're not going to take a chance, we're going to the IVF clinic, even though we don't have a fertility problem? And I don't think we're very far from that. It actually is a function, in a way, of your disposable income. So these tech entrepreneurs that you have already spoken to that are already doing this, to them, this 10 or 20K that it costs for an IVF cycle, and and they may, if they can convince their partner to do it, and if their partner's young, they may go through many cycles. So they, they may freeze 50, 30, you know, some pretty large number of embryos and then pick the best one. Now, you know, you could get several kids out of that, right? But but if that costs you 30K or 50K or 100K, that's still a lot less than private school tuition in San Francisco, even, even in K through 12 for a few years, right? So it's not a bad decision. I think it's just not normative right now. Yeah. But I do want to say that almost everybody that we deal with as a company is already in IVF. They're already making an embryo selection. They just want to make a better one. Right. There is an outlier category of individuals who are typically very high net worth, very smart, kind of tech savvy. They come to us and they want to do more than just that. Maybe they, they wouldn't have been in IVF otherwise, or they want to do some kind of aggressive thing where they have many embryos. That's really not something we push. They seek us out. Our kind of core customer base is families that are having fertility issues. They're usually the mother's older. They're already going through IVF. And as I was mentioning earlier, the biggest impact that we have right now is increasing dramatically the success rates. So just the success rate of having a child just through the chromosome level screening. They may not even ask for the more detailed embryo report. They may just want to have a better characterization of the chromosome structure. Right. So that is really where most of our impact is right now. But there are 
already those edge cases of people being like, we're going to do 50 embryos and we're going to really kind of go for it here and get the absolute best one. Yeah, I I don't know that fifty is a real number, but <laughs> many more than the, many more than the yeah. typical family would have. Yeah, right, right. But also, j- just to comment on that, we already know that a lot of billionaires and super high net worth people have surrogate mothers who carry the child. Yep. So you know that's probably more expensive than doing extra screening. Yeah, and so to that very point around the urgent society wide discussion, do you see that happening? Do you see, like, how do we get there? Because as you say, there's a lot of good that can come out of this, right? But it's not, none of it is kind of, it's hard to say that all of it is purely good, unless you're talking about like avoiding cancer and stuff. But even things like people with Downs, like that has become a typical screening. But then you kind of start to step back, you're like, wow, maybe they're in the future there, you know, there will be no more Downs, kids with Down syndrome. Maybe that will kind of that affliction or that condition will go away. And then you have a lot of people who have kids who have downs who are like, you know, they're wonderful. They're a wonderful part of my life. They've made me see things differently. Like it is, it does kind of, there is something there where you're like, okay, how far are we going to push this? Yeah. I can't, I don't want to be in a position of arguing that the best world is one where we no longer have downs. Mm. On the other hand, I grew up, my next door neighbor was not, I grew up in Iowa in a, you know, little, very bucolic, small town environment. Mm. And my next door neighbor, uh, although he was not a Downs kid, he was uh, what in the 70s and 80s, we would have called a retarded kid. And he was a devastating burden to his family. He was a lovely kid. He was my friend. Uh, we, We played together when we were growing up. But for people to just blithely say, oh, Downs people have some special view of the world, and then totally neglect the incredible strain on the family that maybe they didn't want to have Mm. from that birth. And, you know, my neighbors who were older when my friend Mark was born, they had to live their entire lives wondering what is going to happen to Mark when we die. Right. Because Mark could not care for himself and they were not affluent. And for us to make light of that is just honestly bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, for us to say, oh, I, I don't want to be seen as criticizing somebody. I don't want to be seen as criticizing Mark. But to overlook the stress on his sister and his mother and father that his condition created is just stupid. It's just it's just ignoring reality. Yeah. So again, I, I'm not trying to say that the ideal outcome is no Downs babies, but I think, again, like because we're too sensitive these days, we can't actually talk about reality very you know, openly. So how do you see this playing out, this urgent society-wide discussion? Or do you see see it playing out? Or is it like, you know, a lot of things like it's kind of uh, the saying, events, dear boy, events. Is there going to have to be some thing that happens that wakes all of a sudden be like, oh, we need to figure out what we're okay with, what we're not okay with, how this can be you know, used? How do we make sure that people have equal access? All of these very difficult aspects of this. So as I said, I'm in 100% agreement with that statement from those other scientists who wrote the New England Journal article. I think there should be a society-wide discussion. I think the professional society should discuss this. In the field of reproductive medicine, there's something called the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. And there's a big annual meeting that they have every year, which genomic prediction attends and presents lots of research results. And there are panels and discussions during that meeting on ethics and Mm. all kinds of related things. 
Now, I love what you said, events, you know, what is really happening is that individual families, it's the, it's really the market, right? I mean, you're in Silicon Valley. Individual families, when they're made aware of a certain technology that can benefit them, they're making a decision about whether to use it and how to use it. Yeah. So simultaneously, you have high-minded kind of top-down thinking from bioethicists and scientists publishing in these journals, which nobody reads except other scientists, right? That's going on. We're trying to do our best to get the information out. I'm spending my afternoon talking to you so that people become aware of this science. But what's really happening is the market, uh, venture capital, technology innovation. Suddenly it's available to millions of people. They start using it. That's really what's going to happen. I think a really, a real inflection point may happen though when the safety and effectiveness of editing becomes so strong that billionaires really can produce super children. And once word of that gets out, people are going to really pause and say, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute!" Like you know, Donald Trump's kid is you know uh, six foot four and has an IQ of two hundred. Right. And uh, seems like he's going to live to be 200 years old. How come he gets to do that and we don't get to do that? Yeah, then it'll then I think maybe there'll be a they'll really have an urgent society wide discussion. And that that without getting to the specifics of like those kind of characteristics, but that is there anything in science, at least in terms of what you see that would stop that era of gene editing at the kind of embryonic level to basically engineer your kid? Yeah. So that's what I was alluding to earlier when I said later in the conversation, we should discuss this issue of super people. Yeah. Here's the interesting thing that we're discovering. And this is the most fundamental basic science. It's amazing that how little attention is paid to it, even among the technical specialists. So the biologists who are genomicists, they tend to be very heads down, focused on a narrow problem, like this guy only does cancer or this guy only. Whereas a physicist coming in, a theoretical physicist tends to think a little more broadly. So here's what it looks like. If you take any two random humans, we'll typically differ at about 10 million places on the genome. Okay. So you you have 3 billion base pairs. I have 3 billion base pairs. There'll be about 10 million places where we differ from each other. Yep. And it looks like the individual traits that you have and that I have are largely independent. They can be varied independently. So you can have a tall guy with red hair. You can have a short guy who's nearsighted with brown hair, you can vary these traits independently. And and the way that looks in the predictor algorithms that are generated by the machine learning is that the sets of individual genetic variants that are controlling, that are activated in a particular trait predictor are typically disjoint. They're typically non-overlapping with, um, like most of the stuff controlling height is non-overlapping with the stuff controlling IQ. Right. And the stuff that's controlling IQ is non-overlapping with the heart disease stuff. And if you do a simple calculation the most complicated traits that we've discovered, like height and IQ, typically have of order 10,000 different genetic loci controlling them. So to get to 10 million, I can have a thousand independent traits that are totally disjoint in terms of their genetic controls. Right. So the genetic controls are in different places scattered throughout your chromosomes, but they can be completely independent of each other, which means that I could, if I were editing independently modify each of those 1,000 different things about you without screwing the other ones up. 
Right. So the data now looks like it will be possible to build superhumans if we want to. Right. Because it's effectively what you're talking about is like if in this an analogy of like a house, you can just go on and turn on and off light switches in different rooms that don't affect the room next to it. Exactly. That's a good analogy. And and so it does not appear to be the case that if you want to push the IQ above 200, the person has to be a dwarf or has to have uh, congenital heart disease or you know, diabetic. It doesn't look that way at all. Right. And um, we've published papers to this effect. The, the technical term is pleiotropy. Mm. It's the effect that a single genetic locus has on multiple traits or vice versa. And um, the pleiotropy is pretty modest, actually, it looks like. Anyway, so the science is pointing toward it being possible once we really do have a good handle on making multiplex gene edits it does appear possible to make superhumans. And I don't know, you're probably younger than I am, but did you ever watch the original series of Star Trek? It was on when I was young. I, would, I wouldn't call myself a Trekkie though, but I did, I, you know, I know it. So there's a character called Khan, yep. who's played by a young bodybuilder, Ricardo Montalban. And he's the, first, he's the only buff guy ever on Star Trek because like even Kirk was not exactly buff. And so Montalban played this superhuman guy who was the product of, human genetic engineering. And he was physically stronger than Kirk and smarter than Kirk. He learned, he memorized the whole engineering diagrams of the enterprise while he was lying in sickbay bed. Right. You know, so, okay, it's science fiction, but the science is pointing more toward that direction than away from it. Wow. And is that something that you guys would work on, genetic, genomic prediction? No, not, I mean, this, this fundamental question of what is the degree of pleiotropy and how independent are different complex traits, uh, the controls of the complex traits inside your genome, that's a fundamental question, which, you know, in my university lab, we've published papers on, not the company. But, you know, if the company is still around 20 years from now, it, it may be very interested in exactly the details of that kind of study. And so in just in terms of just before I let you go and kind of thinking about what comes next, is there something... I don't know, a new kind of screen you guys are offering? Is there something else that's kind of coming up either from you guys or more broadly the science of what is possible that we should be thinking about that might be the next kind of event, quote unquote, that might p make people kind of sit up and be like, whoa, what is happening? Well, I think something that's underappreciated is the huge growth we're going to see in IVF in the future. So Denmark is the future. So Denmark, it's 10% of all babies. And especially among people with, you know, women having careers and delaying childbirth longer and longer, it turns out the average age of women when they first marry today is now above 30. Mm. And your early 30s is typically where fertility decline starts to happen. Yep. So I think that, you know, it's not unlikely that, you know, 30% of society may be trying to use IVF even 10, 20 years from now. And uh, if it were paid for by the state, you know, it could be 10, 20, 30% of babies are born. Yeah. And we're talking about kind of Western society with those kind of- Yeah, yeah, yeah. affluent societies yeah. and societies with good gender equality and stuff right. like that. So, so but but I think that that's coming pretty fast. Mm. And so I think uh, the thing that we're trying to get to, we think that this uh, success rate of 70%, that 73%, I think that we were able to get to using our technology- per cycle, you know, pregnancy success rate. Mm. We think that can be pushed up even more using, you know, more aggressive AI and things like this to pick the embryo. If you get to the point where 
it's almost certain, like, like say you get multiple viable embryos, and even if the first transfer doesn't take, the second one will or might, then you get to the point where it's like 90% probable that on a single cycle of IVF, you will get a baby. You know, the whole idea that this is a kind of onerous uh, odyssey, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. journey that you have to take, that, that will go away because the mm. success rate will reach the point where it's almost a sure, not a sure thing, but closer, closer. to much, much closer to a sure thing. And then the societal utilization of it will, I think, you just drastically change. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Well, look, um, we could talk about this for hours more, but I'm conscious of your time. Um, but I appreciate you taking the time and we'll definitely have you go back on as, as things kind of develop, but it's, um, yeah, lots of stuff to unpack as the technology develops, obviously. Yeah. It's, it's been great. Thanks. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Stephen for taking the time to talk. I want to thank you all, as ever, for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends about the pod. If you have any suggestions, potential guests, criticisms, whatever it may be, do reach out. I'm on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. I will endeavor to respond. But anyhow, thank you for taking the time once again, as you do every week. I really do appreciate it. And we'll be back next week with another fabulous episode we have a fun one next week trust me it's gonna be good anyhow have a fantastic week talk soon bye-bye Listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.